I hope we're all trying to stay well. <clears throat> I know there are a few that's not, there's a few that are down. Talked to one young lady who has a little bit of a hoarse voice, but you know I found that over the years, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, it's awful easy to be so excited about the feast and want to be doing things, and we actually come the last day or two where we're down. So remember each other and pray for each other. Pray for our pastor who God has really been inspiring. We had a little bit of a session last night. A number of people were there and it was really phenomenal. In fact, the sermons up so far have been just tremendous. God's really been, as far as I can see, He's really been blessing us. Uh, you read these things and I, I know I've been around uh, the man that Daryl was talking about last night. Uh, for me, when I first heard it, it was real difficult. And uh, it's hard sometimes to change 45 years or 43 years of training. And then all you hear this, you know, you have your mind set to go to the Middle East and be a part of a, and be taken to a, a, a place of safety called uh, Petra. Although I can remember... Uh, at the feast uh, some years ago, I did a sermon on the place of safety, and Daryl was pointing out back then that uh, it would be more like in the western part of this country. And then I got to looking and studying into that, and I could understand that I don't see how my husband-to-be or our God would stand with us, our backs to these um, temples, pagan temples and speak to us or with us looking at them and looking at him and we're facing them. I couldn't feature that, so I was changing then. But then to be able to talk to a man who points out things that was really difficult and uh, to have the faith and the trust that, that God really wants us to have, it is hard. But it's one of those things that's a growing process too, isn't it? Because I was there in... 64, and we were talking about fleeing in 72. Well, 69 came, and things didn't seem like they were changing, and 71 came, and finally 72. And I remember Charles Dorothy preaching a sermon and said, I done enough studying to see that it probably won't be 72 or 75. It could possibly be 82 or 85. But we've already gone through that period of time too. So sometimes we set dates and they don't always work out, do they? We just have to follow God's pattern and God's plan. And uh, I think I remember a sermon by another man one time. He said too, too often what we try to do is uh, set God's time schedule. But things are not ready. We can't set God's time schedule. You know, we have the holy days throughout the year. The first one is the Passover. And we recognize that that's when the Savior of mankind came. He portrayed the fact that if we're going to be a part of the family of God, He had to die. We had to have a sacrifice to cover that sin that we have done. As pointed out in Hebrew so many places that... Uh, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't completely cover 
your sins forever. Only one sin. So they had to kill an animal, and every time they had to commit a sin, to see that there was a death required for breaking God's law. And so, in God's master overall plan, he set up the Passover. And Christ paid the penalty for all humanity before the time he walked on the earth as a human, through our day and the coming time in front of us. So we see the Passover was a very important time in mankind's life because it gave us the opportunity to come to the Father. And when he died, remember, the veil split in half. We no longer had to go to a man and say, take me to the Father. No. We go directly to our Father through our Savior. Then we have Pentecost. Comes along at the calling of the church and setting aside of a group of people that will be part of the family of God. A tremendous time for relating to the church and who those people are. It was a calling time. A tremendous calling time. And we come to trumpets in which we find that on the day of trumpets, this trumpet will sound those that have not only been called but those who have been selected and those who have worked their life into serving their God, changing their life, repenting, would be transformed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The dead would rise, and then we, if we have put on righteous garments, would also be transformed and become God at that time. In Revelation 20, verse 1, Revelation 21 tells us something interesting that happens at this time of the trumpet. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So we see at a time when Satan is going to be put out of the picture. Satan's going to be taken away. No longer will he affect for a thousand years humanity. Isn't that fantastic to, to look at a future where you don't have to worry of what's going to happen? Well, there at the first of the feast, I've spent a lot of time talking about doubt. Didn't I? I covered that the major tool that Satan has in deception is doubt. Can we imagine now a time when this creature, sometimes we call him he, but it is a creature, it's not a male or a female. It's a creature that's been put aside, bound, as it says here in Revelation, for a thousand years. He is no longer going to be able to come out there and cast doubt into humans' minds. And that is something phenomenal in itself. Something to grasp that Satan will no longer be a part of what's going to happen. In Proverbs chapter 6, something that we've covered many times. I want to start a little bit further ahead though. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 12. A sign that this master deceiver, the one casting doubt, has done to humanity. Proverbs 6, verse 12, 
a naughty person, a wicked man, walks with a forward mouth. So we have to grasp what it's saying there. We have to be very uh, watchful on what comes out of our mouth. We cannot, cannot be a forward person, can we? Because it says that it's a wicked person. If he's got a forward mouth and casting doubt, he winks with his eyes. He speaks with his feet. He teaches with his fingers. How many times have we seen that? You know, we, they're up there leading people as they think maybe in the right direction, but not always is it right. You know, I brought out, I think, back in that sermon that God appoints teachers. He's done that from day one with mankind. And it goes through today. We have a whole book here talking about our prophets the teachers that God selected. He didn't select everybody, but he selected certain ones. Verse 14. Forwardness is in his heart. Is in his heart. He desires, uh, desires mischief continually. He sows discord. A forward person causing discord. You know what happened back before mankind walked the earth? This great super being, a cherub, an archangel who was in charge of millions of angels, sowed discord. He cast doubt in the minds of millions of angels. And we see the sad results of that with a third, as the Bible indicates, a third of those creatures Spectacular spirit beings being led contrary to the will of God and then becoming, losing their light and becoming what we call demons now. Discord, doubt, sown by the master deceiver. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. You know, that's going to happen to men as well as it did with the angelic host. It was sudden that it occurred, that God took away eternity of happiness and peace and joy because these people, these, in, these spirit beings, disrespected their father. And doubt was caused by one being. Satan has a peculiar way, doesn't he? He reaches into our minds sometimes very deceitfully. We don't even recognize it. And sometimes we, as Terry's been bringing on his sermons, our sermonettes, that uh, it's, to us it's, it's, an, it's a white sin. It's not really a big sin. But to God it is major. It is a major problem to cause doubt. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. And Satan throws things at us and we don't recognize it. We don't grasp sometimes. We think we're right as a human being. We think we're walking the right path, but not necessarily. Here in 1 Peter, God inspired Peter to write, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. So here God's saying, be careful. Humble yourself. If we're humble, 
We're not going to be forward like we read earlier there in Proverbs. It says, humble yourself, and God's going to exalt you. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Can we grasp how much our Creator cares for us? We really ought to give a lot of thought. We've had tremendous sermons. I mean, for even for me, I don't know about you, but my mind's been just swirling. We've got so much information that we've read and reread, and I've been in the church now for 40 some years, read these scriptures, but now God is beginning to open our understanding. Not that we're better than anybody else, but it's His plan, and He's got something there, and He wants to help us. He wants to exalt us, exalt you, give you an opportunity. So we need to cast our cares upon Him. Be sober, it tells us. Be sober. You know, a drunk person doesn't understand what he's doing most of the time. He thinks he does, but when he's under the influence of alcohol, what is it? He, he doesn't make good judgments. He's apt to speed, he's apt to hit something, can't walk straight. You know, when they stop you out there and you're drunk and tell you to walk a straight line, can't walk a straight line. Can't bring your finger up to your nose. There's a lot of things they do to find out because a person under the influence does not recognize what's going on. So it tells us here, Peter, Christ speaking through Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. That means getting yourself alert and awake all the time. Finding out what God wants us to do. Because it says here, your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to deceive you. He doesn't care about people out here that are no knowledge of him. When we heard God speaking through uh, Daryl, told us that we're all light. And how hard is it in a darkened room? I can remember years ago doing a sermonette and having the lights turned out and had a little lighter and light that lighter. In a big room like this, in the middle of the night, that light, how hard is it to find out where that light is? It stands out no matter how far away you are. Well, that's where we are. We're a light. Satan can see you. He's not worried about the rest of the world. He's worried about deceiving you. He wants to pull us down. Whom resist, it tells us. Christ is telling us, telling you, telling me, telling the world that wants to listen, telling the church, even though they're sitting out there and they're not sober and they're not vigilant yet, says, resist steadfastly in faith. The faith that we read about in Hebrews 11. Men and women who had the faith and the trust in God that they went all the way. So he said, steadfastly in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we're going through the same things our brothers and sisters that will sleep right now went through. Abraham, Isaac, David, Noah, Imagine poor Noah for 120 years telling people, change, repent. Be careful. The world's going to come to an end. You have 
you have 120 years, now you have 100 years, now you have 50 years, now you have 20 years. Can you imagine getting down to the final five, four years, and people will not listen? And finally, he goes into the ark that God had made, had him make, and he and his family went in with the animals, and God shut the door. And we know as we read in Revelation, when God shuts the door, nobody can open that door. Today we have an open door in front of us. We need to walk through that door, don't we? So we're told to resist the pulls and the wiles of Satan. He's very deceptive. He knows who you are. You can't hide from him. But you can resist him and he will leave from you. James 4, verse 7. James 4, 7. Again, we're told in James to submit ourselves, therefore, to God. We're told to submit ourselves to God. Get down, put our nose to the grind wheel and our shoulder to the road and keep going. Work and plug at it. And then he says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. If we resist Satan, if we put up a barricade that Satan cannot penetrate by resisting him through faith, he'll leave us. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. So the closer we come to God in prayer and study and our life wrapped around Him, He's going to come to us and cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, we remember reading in Revelation 18.4, says, come out of this world. You can't be double-minded. You can't live in the world and be a part of this world and a part of this way of life and be a part of God's family too. You can't have, like they say, one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel because that banana peel will be slippery. And you're not going to make the kingdom of God. So they said resist him and don't be double-minded. Have a single mind of doing things God's way. Resisting Satan. And Ephesians 4 tells us to not give place in our life to Satan the devil. No matter what comes down the line, just do not give Satan any foothold, any opportunity, or any part in your way of life. It has to be totally, completely revolved around what God is doing. And we've heard those sermons. It is exciting. And we looked at the stock market. I think my wife had it on this morning, and it's down again today down again. We know that this country is going down. We've heard the sermons. We have to believe God. We have to have faith and trust in God. And whatever comes up toward us, trust God. And He will take care of us. I gave a definition on that first sermon of trust. Remember, it was the reliance on the character the ability, the strength, and the truth of someone or something. True, true, true trust, then, should be on our Creator. Our Creator, as I went through, was trying to show that God's character is complete trust. 
Our trust should be in our God. He doesn't lie. He fulfills everything He says He will do. His ability is beyond the capability of all mankind put together. Remember there's a scripture that says that His greatness is greater than all of man, no matter what they do. And our greatness is like a drop in a bucket. And God is so massive and so strong and has such great ability. And His strength is up there. That's another characteristic. And God is truth. In John Christ's last prayer, the real prayer of Christ, as He was about to be beaten and killed for each one of us, for all mankind, in His last prayer said, Father, Your Word is truth. So God's Word is truth. God can be trusted because He is truthful. I also thought back on that sermon Gordon brought. Remember he says, God's mercy endures forever. Do we give that a lot of thought? Or do we want to take a little bit of doubt and doubt that God has mercy that is slack? Or not slack, but God's mercy is forever. We take the, if we take the approach that God can't help us, then we're doubting God. But throughout that Psalm 136, the Lord was pointing out, it says time and time and time again, emphasizing the fact that God has a not ending mercy. His mercy continues and continues and continues. There is no end to our God. So we need to learn to trust our Creator God. Psalms 28:26. He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. So if we look out there and say, I can trust what I can do. And, we, and I've heard this so many times. Trust me. A man saying, trust me. And see them turn right around and become untrustable. <laughs> Telling stories. I took a job once on a handshake. Basically saying the same thing. Trust me, we will do it this way. A four-year plan. Three years down the line, he broke his trust. How can you say, trust me? So it says, he that trusts in in his own heart is a fool. So do we trust in our own ability? I can stick with this. There's nothing that can pull me aside. Paul said, who can save me? I'm weak, I make mistakes, who can trust me? I can thank Christ because He can save me. Not me, not my arm or my might or my knowledge, my education or my lack of education, my abilities, my uh, background, none of those things can save me. I can't trust in who I am. I can only trust in Christ. But... Whoso walks wisely, he shall be delivered. Again, it's telling us to be wise. Wise and wisdom comes from God. From this Word and from the people that He sends to teach and train and educate. 
So how do we take it? Do we listen to the one who had everything? The greatest of God's creation who one day walking across the sea of glass, this is speculation maybe, walking across the sea of glass seeing how great he looked, it looked, could look at itself and say, I am spectacular, and then begin to cast doubt. Are we going to be that way? If we trust in our own self, we will be that way. Because you can't trust in your own self. We have to find that we have to believe what God says here. We have to be in agreement one with another. I think just before the feast, maybe it was the Day of Atonement, we heard Daryl speak and say, we must all speak the same thing. We must all have the same attitude, the attitude of Christ. We must all be in the same book on the same page. If we're going to do and become a part of what's yet to happen in the future, if we're going to be around to see that being who thought he was the greatest of all God's creatures put in handcuffs or chains taken to a bottomless pit and locked up and shut the door and sealed it that there is no way that he could open it or it can open it. We must be in agreement with our God, with his word, and the direction he's taking us into. In Amos 3, verse 3, you all know this one, let's just read it. Can two walk together? Can two of us walk together, go in the same direction, accomplishing many things, except we be in agreement? What if we try to walk together and I think we ought to do it this way and you think it ought to be done that way? It, it becomes confusion, doesn't it? Can you be with God and be with Satan? No. You have to be 100% going God's way. It is important, it's imperative that we walk with Christ, that we walk in the path that he's leading us. And sometimes it doesn't look like it's right. But that's sometimes our own understanding, isn't it? Sometimes we think that way. I thought that way when I first heard sitting down one of those conferences with Gordon and Jan and Daryl. And I couldn't agree. I mean, it was just so different. And I had a tough time with that. But sitting in the Feast of Tabernacles here and the sermons coming up to the point of the Feast of Tabernacles, I, maybe you can say your eyes are open. My eyes were open. I can see as clear as a picture can be what God's doing and who He's using. And to me, it's plain. It's clear. But there for a long time, it was looking through that glass darkly or dimly. Couldn't see. It was clouded over. And that's because of my past and my history and my attitude, maybe. But now God's wiping that, that away and giving us an understanding of that this country is Israel. That this country is where God's been working. And I think maybe many years ago, I used to think, how could... 
God say that little country of Israel, who is just a small place, maybe as big as Florida, be blessed when we have 300 million people living there? Where would we put everybody in that little place? <laughs> How could everybody have a, a field and have a fig tree and a, you know, a garden and can feed themselves? In that little country, we'd be person to person almost. Or having to live in big cities, which to me seemed like an abomination to put millions of people like in New York or Chicago or Houston, where I lived for a while. This doesn't seem right that our God would do that, does it? Now, we have to realize that God is in charge and we must listen to what He's saying. You know, He took a mule one time. God was trying to lead the nation astray, and Israel astray, and he, the guy beat his mule, and the mule turned around and said, Why are you beating on me? That would be pretty shocking, and how you would talk back to an animal talking to you and not realize, what's going on here? What am I doing wrong here? But if God can talk to a mule, he can talk to you and me through human beings, can he? Who are greater than mules or dogs or cats or other animals. So we must beginning, we must put the effort into agreeing with God and walking with Christ and walking with the men that God puts in charge. And there's going to come a time, there's going to be two witnesses out here, two men, and it says that they will restore all knowledge. Well, I think we're being restored to some knowledge right now. Oh, Mr. Armstrong gave us a lot of knowledge, and no doubt, each one of us are here because God used a man who was willing to walk with him and agree with him. No, he didn't give him all the answers, I don't think. He didn't give him everything, no more than he did to Daniel. He told Daniel, remember, shut up the book. It's not for your understanding. And I think Mr. Armstrong had a lot of that shut up that it wasn't for his understanding. It wasn't the right time. God called enough people that then, if those, and those people that are willing to walk with Him could be chosen. And I see a lot of people here that are willing to walk with God. We've had things that were not tradition or that had been tradition that we've changed. Passover, uh, in a big way, the calendar. There's a lot of people out there that will not change the calendar because of tradition. Mr. Armstrong didn't change it, but it wasn't for Mr. Armstrong to show us that it needed to be changed. Now, God saved that for a little later. The other things that are going to have to be changed, because it says... All will be restored back to the original. We're restoring some, as, or God is restoring some, and we're willing to make that change. So I can say, as I look out here, I see a number of people that are wanting to walk with Christ. They're wanting to listen, wanting to obey, wanting to follow Him. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14, if we're walking with God, then, then we can look here and read, and be not, 
unequally yoked together with unbelievers. If you're equally or trying to become equally yoked with an unbeliever, then you're not walking with Christ and you're becoming a double-minded person. You can't do that. God won't have it. He says, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? Can't agree with it. How can you walk if you're walking in righteousness with someone who is unrighteous? It doesn't work. So it says, how can you have fellowship with righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? What identity do we put with Satan? Certainly I don't want to be, and I know you don't want to be, thrown into some black hole someplace and put a chain on. Of course, that won't happen to us. But that's going to happen to Satan. So what communion can you have with blackness, darkness, that you can't see? We're told we are children of light, not of children of the darkness. So you can't be double-minded wanting to be a part of that. You can't want to be part of, say, Las Vegas and part here in Anatoth. It doesn't work. You can't agree with it. Not possible. And what accord has Christ with Baal? What, what agreement? What accord? What you know a three a two chord rope is a single chord is real weak, two chords a little bit strong, but a three chord is tough to break. So what chord, what kind of twisting of cord does Christ have with with Satan, basically? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? You have to ask yourself. Satan is trying his best to destroy your relationship with your Creator. He wants to destroy it. He wants to get rid of it. He wants to Get rid of you. He's not worried about the Baptists or the Catholics or the people that are blowing themselves up over there and with their religious beliefs. No. Christ is worried about you. Satan is worried about you too. He knows if he can't get to you, it knows he can't get to you, it will it'd be cast away. So we have to be strong. We have to resist Satan in every aspect that he throws at us. And our trust then, if we have to take and relate that, and go back to, if we put doubt out, then we build trust. We have to put our trust then into our Creator. If we want to be trusted then too, if we want to be trusted by God, we need to be trustworthy, don't we? We told make a change. And we might be told not to consume sugar. Do we trust God? There's a report right I think it was today. We trust uh, manufacturing in this country, and yet that report today says there are millions of I think it's home, I mean these store-bought pizzas, frozen pizzas, 
that have uh, E. coli in it. Now, do we trust the world or we trust God? We're going to have to face it. If we're going to be trusted by God, we have to listen to what he says and make a change in our life. Or we'll be a part of the world and probably die. Second Peter 1. Our trust, our hope, our everything we do has to rely on what God is willing to teach us if we're willing to, to let him teach us. Revel, back in Revelation, I'm not going to turn there, but I just relate it in, to the speaking to the Laodicean church, which is part of the church of God. It's one of the seven churches. And each one has their good points and their bad points. But to, Revel, to Laodicea, he said, I stand at the door and knock. Will you let me come in? How many people hear the knock? They don't let him in. He said, if you let me in, I'll come in and eat with you. So if we trust God, if we're going to be trusted by God, if we're going to be said, you are my servants, I trust you, we have to open that door and say, come in and teach me. A door's open. Come on in. I want to be taught by you. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. This is Peter speaking, relating to those men that Christ had personally trained. That included Paul for three years, three and a half years in the desert. He said, We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the uh, day star rises in your heart. So here he's telling us that this word, we have it, he says. The Bible has a more sure word of prophecy. It's not um, somebody who's going on their own opinion, on their own thoughts, their own knowledge. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Men didn't write this Bible by saying, oh, I think I'm going to write Proverbs. I think I've got a background, I've lived this long, I'll write these Proverbs. No, Solomon was inspired to write it, it says. And whether it be Proverbs, or Isaiah, or any of the minor prophets, the first five books of the Bible, written by one man, as God led him through the knowledge, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, all these things it says were inspired. So no, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. These men did not take it on their own will. It wasn't their own private ideas. For the prophecies came not in old times by the will of men, but by holy men God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the power and the might and of our Creator God. They were inspired to write these things. 
We've seen that. And Daryl's gone through the chapter 9 of, of uh, Daniel. Inspired to write those things. Daniel didn't just do this on his own. When he answered the king when he said, I've had a dream. Now you tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation of it. How could Daniel on his own? We saw, we saw that in Daniel, many of the prophets of the king at that time went up to him and said, it is impossible to tell a man what he's dreaming and then tell him the interpretation of it. But only God can do that. So that reinforces what it says right there. That these prophecies only come through our Creator God. We have to be willing to say, yes, sir, I believe that what you put in here, and I trust this. And we're seeing that if we trust it, our minds are then opened, and we have a better understanding of what's going to occur. Don't we? And that is so spectacular. So, are you willing to listen to what God says? Do we believe and trust God? If we do, then we'll believe what He says here, and then God can trust you, because not only can you believe it, but you have to obey it. So, it's not only trusting God, but you have to obey what He says. Israel didn't do that, did they? They didn't obey Him. They got stiff-necked, hard-headed, Every time they turned around, he said, do this, and they did something else. He said, I'm going to give you a spectacular land of flowing with milk and honey. They come back and said, ah, these people are too big over here. They're going to hurt us. I mean, they didn't trust God. He showed them what he's going to give them. Two men come back out of 12 and said, let's get with the program. The others were afraid. And then God said, okay, you don't go up there. That's fine. You wander around until you all die. They said, no, we're going to go up there. Hard-headed. And they died. Because <laughs> they didn't want to listen. Does God trust you? Are you trustworthy? If you're trustworthy, when you hear God say something, you will say, yes, sir. Yes, Father. Your will. Young people, boys and girls. Your parents are in that same position. If you listen to your parents and they say, this is the way, they've been around long enough to know. If you reject that knowledge, remember the first commandment with promise is, obey your parents in the Lord that you may have a long life. If you can't obey your parents, how will you ever learn to obey God and be trustworthy for God. God wants you to be trustworthy and you learn that as a young person. And as you get older, you find there are other things you have to trust God in. God brought us to this piece of property. Do we trust Him enough to know that no matter what these other people say about it, He will take care of us? I remember back in 2001, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of a sudden, the light come on. God wants us to come out here. I trusted God that He wanted us to come out here. We found this piece of property. To me, it was a gift from God. 
now that we trust God that he not only gave us a property, not only showed us that this is where we want us to be, that not only he gave us this property, now we see the enemies, like David said, like bulls or dogs or what, eating on him. He said, help. I trust you to take care of us. We have to have that kind of confidence in our God for him to trust us. We're going to go ahead, go forward, not take two steps backward, keep going forward, because he promised and he will accomplish his goals. He is powerful, loving, and truthful. If we're going to be trusted by God, we have to have the right attitude, the right frame of mind. As I brought out, God cannot trust us if we harden our heart, though. Couldn't trust Israel. Finally had to divorce the nation, didn't he? Because they wouldn't listen. They were not trustworthy. Proverbs 28, 14. Are we hard-headed? Can God trust us? If we're hard-headed, there's no way He can trust us because we set our mind and our jaw to go against God's way of life as opposed to being humble and meek. Happy is the man that fears always. You know, Gordon did what, four sermons, Gordon, on that, uh, on fear. It says, happy is the man that fears always. Not the man that sits over there and fears only when he gets something his way. But fears always. But he that hardens his heart shall fall into mischief. Israel was a tremendous case to that. They hardened their heart. What happened in the church? Brought out, I think, in the sermon, sermonette rather today. We saw many of our friends, people we loved. People I couldn't believe would, would stick with what they were hearing, but they hardened their hearts against the truth. And they fell into mischief. It's sad. You want to cry because you love these people so much. You want to think, you want to see things done God's way. You want people to be trusted God. But you cannot harden your heart. Turn over. Zechariah now, Zechariah chapter 7. God wants us to be trustworthy, but if you turn and walk the other way, how can He trust you? How can God put the trust in you if you can't trust Him? Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8. The word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the Creator God, saying, Execute true judgment, show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. That's the first thing he's telling us to do. He's telling us how to do it, how to live our life, to show mercy and true judgment. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, or the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. 
And Christ emphasized that too, Matthew chapter 5, how it was so important, not only do you physically can't do that, you can't mentally do that. He told the scribes and Pharisees that what's the most important thing? Justice, mercy, and faith. And here he's emphasized that. You can't oppress the fatherless or the widow. Christ emphasized that through his life. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the, the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. He doesn't like that. God doesn't like us to stop up our ears, turn our back on Him, on His ways. No, it might not seem like it's easy, but it wasn't easy. Remember we read that? Those that went in front of us? It wasn't easy for them either. They gave their life in many cases. Remember Daryl's sermons back pointed out how Isaiah was probably sawn in half with a wooden saw. I can't can't imagine people being that cruel and that ferocious in the attitude toward other human beings. But then, I can remember back in the Second World War. I was a kid, but I seen the movies and the... the, uh, the newsreels during that period of time when the tragedy was produced over in Germany in some of these concentration camps. How can we be so cruel? But we are. And we turn our shoulders against our God. Yes, they made their hearts as an abominant stone, a hard stone, lest they should hear the law. Oh, they... I'm not going to listen. They made their hearts stony, their mind a penetrate. They put a wall instead of a bridge. They build a wall between them and their Creator, and not a bridge between them and their Creator. So they got a stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in His Spirit by the form of prophets. Again, it's emphasizing God chose people to do this. But they didn't want to hear. They turned their back. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord. What's going to happen in the very near future? We're talking about a great wrath? I mean, it's really going to get bad. And when they think it's bad, it's only going to get worse. (laughs) Therefore, it has come to pass that as He cried... And they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, said the Lord of hosts. God says, I sent prophets, you don't want to listen. So when you start crying, help, help, I'm not going to listen. I gave you a chance. I gave you plenty of time. gave you plenty of chance, plenty of opportunity to make a change. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, and no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. We've been hearing about the pleasant land that is today desolate. A place of spiders and and, uh, rabbits and... Lizards, the whole land desolate. 
in Romans chapter 2. God tells us in verse 6 that He will render to every man according to his deeds. Think on that. If you trust God and follow Him, then what does He offer you? Eternal life? The bride of Christ? But if you turn your back and He's sending His message out there saying, listen to what I've got to say, and He says, I won't hear and you turn your back on God, the time will come, you're going to say, but I sat in the chair, I sat in services every week on Sabbath, I went to the Feast of Tabernacles, I went to Passover and took the Passover service, and God says, you didn't change. I can't hear you. That's tough. One of God's teaching methods is isolation. He isolates people. We, I brought that out at one time. I said that God isolates people. You know, if you're doing something wrong, he sent Paul and said, put this man out from you. Let him learn that where he needs to be is here. And so if nobody talks to him and nobody's fellowshipping with him, you're isolating him. He'll be taken care of, he'll change, he'll see his mistakes. So God's going to render to you, to me, to mankind, the way they live, even in the world tomorrow. You know, this day representing that time when billions of people will be resurrected to life and says they're going to be taught what? They will be judged out of what? The same book that you're being judged out of. We're being judged today. They will be judged out of this too. And how they respond. That's what this day represents. The billions of people are getting the opportunity to know what you know now ahead of time. And to have a better resurrection. A better place to live. A better way of life. We need to be doing the will of God. We'll go back now to atonement. So I covered Passover, the sacrifice. I covered Pentecost, the great calling that God sent out to call all that He needed. There's 144,000 crowns. Some of them have already been set aside. We don't know how many set aside for this day and time. But we know there's 144,000. And if he's offered one to you and you reject it, you won't have another chance. That's why I said, today is our judgment. Church of God, those that God called out, he's judging today. And if you're willing to make that change, and you say, I will follow, I trust you 100%, Whatever, it might look like it's going to be a terrible situation in front, but you promised you would take care of me. And I believe you. And whether it be healing, or a job, or the enemy coming after you, he promises to take care of us. And trumpet shows the return of Christ and those resurrected. And then we come to atonement. We have learned 
in the past few years, that atonement represents the marriage of Christ to his bride. And I think throughout the whole scriptures, there's a relationship to atonement. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it tells us, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one. So we hear about atonement at one man. Man becoming at one with God. And throughout the scriptures we read of marriage. And a man leaves his father and his mother, his wife leaves, the woman leaves her father and mother, she marries the man and those two become one. How great, how spectacular can that be? We look at the Day of Atonement as the marriage of being at one with our God. In Matthew 19, turn there, Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees, always trying to get at Christ, always trying to put Him down, always trying to find something they could get to Him on, because He was God in the flesh. And we know that He never sinned. But He was righteous, and He lived a righteous life. So here it says, chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees also came unto Him, tempting Him. You see, they came tempting Him, trying to find some way to get to Him, and said unto Him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They were trying to find a way to break up a marriage. A marriage that Christ is talking about, that He's talking about, is the marriage of the Lamb Himself to His bride on the Day of Atonement. So here they're trying to figure out a way to get around some of these things. And Christ answered and said to them, Have you not read that He which made them in the beginning made them male and female? He's talking about Himself here because He made them. You can go to John chapter 1 and read that. John chapter 1, read down through there. It says that He was the one that created all this. He made them male and female. And He said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Therefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. And what God, and what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. When God joins to His bride, there is no way to separate them. There will not be a way. In First Peter, we're told in chapter three, it says that wives are to be subjected to their husbands. Think on that. First Peter three, verse one. First Peter three, verse one. It says, likewise, you wives, be subject to your own husband. Who's he talking to? The church, yes. To who? The one that's going to be married to Christ, he says. Be subject to your husband. Can God trust you? Are you willing to be subject to God? Be subject to your own husband. If, or that, if any obey not the word, so he's given some direction to the people 
human beings too, but it all relates back to being part of the bride of Christ, that they may be, that they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So there is coming a time that God wants you to be subject to Him in everything. And that's today. We have to be subject into what He's teaching us to do, to follow Him and to do things His way. I've got a marriage ceremony I want to read to you. We'll change a little bit of it. And I'm not saying that this is what God will use, but it is interesting if you think that God, for the most part, had us make a vow to a wife or a husband. This marriage ceremony goes, I require and charge you both, and think of this as us marrying Christ, and the Father speaking now. Picture this on the sea of glass. Millions of angels standing around. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, and the Father standing up there. Father reading this. You're standing there. Christ is there. He charges you both as you stand in the Father's presence, the Father giving this marriage ceremony. You're standing in His presence to remember that love and loyalty alone will avail as the foundation of a happy and enduring eternity. Here it says home, but eternity. Love has no end, does it? True love. No other human ties are more tender, no other vows more sacred than those that you vow right now. So here God's looking at you and saying, you're vowing to marry my son. And the son that you're vowing to marry this woman. If you keep uh, these vows without violating them in any way, and if steadfastly you endeavor to do the will of your heavenly Father, He gives us a will. It's His will. His what He wants. Your life will be full of joy and your home, which you are establishing, will be established forever and ever. Then to Christ, he would say, will you have this woman? Speaking of the bride, speaking of us, if we're willing to follow His way and trust Him, will you have this woman to be your wife? Can we see and hear our Father asking Christ, would He have me? Ask yourself, would Christ have me? Am I trustworthy enough that Christ would say, I want that person. 
I love them that much that I want that person to live together for eternity. We have to be trustworthy to be able to sit there and hear those words read to us or to our Savior. To hear Him ask, will you love her and comfort her and take care of her for eternity? It's interesting that He might not use those words, but that's what it's going to be. You hear our Savior say, I want that bride forever. And then He turns to us. Will you, and put your name in there, can you say, I will have this spirit, magnificent being to be my husband. To live with him forever. I will love him and comfort him. I will honor him more than anything. And I will not forsake him for anything else. Can we say that? Are you ready to put that out? Are you ready to say, I am ready to marry Christ? Something to think about. But you have to be trustworthy to be there. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 28. So ought men to love their wives. Christ will love his wife as his own body. We know Christ loves the church. He admonishes us to love our wives as men and as He loved the church. So we love your wife as your own body. He that loves his wife loves himself. Think, when Christ says, I love you, He's saying, I love myself too. Because I am a God of love. No man has ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it even as the Lord the church. Think how Christ loves the church. He gave his life for it. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall join to his wife and they shall be one flesh. Christ is going to say, we will be one. One family. We will walk together. Again, can we look back at Amos and say, can we walk with Christ in one body with a different attitude? No. We have to walk together. We have to be on the same page and we have to be trustworthy. Go to Proverbs chapter 31. This is the kind of wife that our Savior is looking for. 
This is something that He wants from each one of us. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. What is Christ looking for? In you, in the church, in me. He's looking for a virtuous bride, isn't he? He's looking for a virtuous woman. And there is no physical, financial price that you can put on it. You can stack all the gold and silver together, but a, a bride for Christ is going to be stacked higher than all of that. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. He wants to trust you. That's the bride that he wants. He doesn't want a bride that's going to go over here and do some other thing. He wants a completely trusting bride. He wants a woman that is no price can be put on her greatness. I was going over this, I was thinking of Esther, who was apparently a virtuous woman. He found, Ahasuerus found. And I think that story fits in there. That she was worth more than, because he, remember he said, I'd give you half of my kingdom. Whatever you want, tell me. She had to be a spectacular person that he would say that. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. So he's looking at you and me. Are we doing him good? Are we that virtuous woman that he can look down and say, she's going to do great for me. She will do him good and not evil. She will. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. She's striving to build a wedding gown that is without spot or wrinkle in it. White and pure. And she's working with her hands and working with her heart. She is like the merchant ship that brings her food from afar. So she's out there searching. She's striving to get every bit of information she can so that she will be trustworthy by him. She rises while yet uh, it, it is night and gives meat to her household and a portion to her maids. Do we think of other people? Her heart is such that she is concerned about what God wants done. She's concerned about her family, her brothers and sisters, and she's going to take care of them. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Well, we're told that the fruit of God's Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is one of those things that we find as an acceptable sin, maybe, not being long-suffering, in short. But that's the fruit that she's planting. The fruit of God's Spirit in her life. 
She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. So she's spending the time to know exactly what her husband wants. And she strengthens her arms and resists Satan in every possible way that he tries to get to her. She lays her hands to the spindle and her hands hold the staff. She stretches out her hand to the pouring. She reaches forth with her hand to the needy. Are we ready to help in every aspect of our life? She's not afraid to, of, of the snow for her household. For her household are clothed with scarlet. So she's making sure that the church is pretty well dressed. When the winter comes and the hard times hit, she's there. Christ is looking for this type of a woman. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land because her heart is with her husband and she's striving to do things his way. Strength and honor are in are her clothing and she shall rejoice in the time to come. That's what's said in front of those that become the bride of Christ. Christ is looking for a virtuous wife, one that trusts him in every aspect of her life. The bride of Christ, the virtuous woman. You know, Matthew 25 talks of the ten virgins. Only five of those spent their time preparing to be the bride. Others relaxed, Laodicean. Christ knocked and they didn't open. Five of them, Christ knocks and they let him in because they're out there wanting to be that virtuous wife, a virtuous woman. There's coming a time in the future that Christ is going to need his wife by his side, walking with him, trusting him explicitly. And he's going to look back and know, I can trust this person. There's no doubt in my mind because I got rid of the doubter. I got rid of the one that causes doubt and bound him for a thousand years. And this woman, the virtuous woman, the one that trusts me, who said, I will do it your way. I will not separate. I will not walk a separate path. But I'm going to walk in the same path. I'm going to be tied together with you. We have a tremendous future, brethren. We've been fed by uh, food that God's been inspiring us to have for the whole feast. We're going to go back, you know. And we have a tendency, I think, as human beings to become lax. Don't do that. God wants to trust you. The Father wants to trust you. He wants to have so much trust in you, He can say, will you marry my son? Will you honor him? Will you obey him? 
Will you trust him? How will you answer?